how is a person saved? How does a person get saved? Salvation is central to the Christian faith. It's something that we always talk about. It's always on our lips. But do you know the actual places in Scripture that tell you how a person is saved and how it works? Normally I have some introduction, some story, something... I don't have that this morning because we have so much to cover. And it's going to be a little bit deeper this morning. And I just pray and hope that you'll follow along because I think you'll be blessed if you can follow along. Last week, we saw how Paul and Barnabas, they remained faithful to the mission. They were persecuted. They were worshipped, stoned, left for dead. But they kept on with the mission. In chapter 14, it ends mentioning that God opened a door of faith for the Gentiles. That is an important narrative clue. He wants us to see that the gospel is expanding and it's going beyond just the Jews. And we keep seeing this with the church in Acts, that there's growth and there's setback. There's growth and there's setback. There's growth and there's persecution. There's growth and then there's a problem. And we have another problem in our text today. These many people from other nations who aren't Jews, they are now believing in the Jewish Messiah. And because some Jews have a problem, they're having an issue with Gentiles believing in the Messiah, they come and say something about it. I want to say up front, that there are two problems being addressed in our text, two problems that the Jewish people are going to bring up. Right now, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 6, but let's uncover what these two problems are. Look at verse 1. But some men came from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. What's being said here? Well, these men, they've they've come from Judea, and they are teaching the necessity of circumcision for salvation. Judea, it refers to the southern kingdom. If you know Israel's history at this point, there are two kingdoms. There's the north and southern kingdom. Let's think about what they're saying for a moment. They are claiming circumcision is necessary for salvation. You have to be circumcised or you won't be saved. On top of the faith that you already have in Jesus, you also need to be circumcised. 
Why would the Jews believe that? There's a deep underlying reason for why. Let's start by looking at the fact that our text says the Jews have a specific place where they see the commandment for circumcision. Verse 1, it's circumcision according to the custom of Moses. So where did Moses teach the necessity of circumcision? Well, one place, Leviticus 12, verses 1 to 3, listen to this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, a woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son will be unclean for seven days as she is during her days of menstruation. And on the eighth day, the flesh of the boy's foreskin is to be circumcised. There it is. That's law. Got to do that. All males have to be circumcised, according to a Jew, according to the law of Moses, because it marked them out as God's people. We have to understand how important the law was to the Jewish people. The law told the story about how Israel became a nation. The law taught Israel how to live a holy life. The law had promises of blessing if they were obedient. The law gave the Jewish people their identity. And through the law, the nation of Israel was a theocracy. What is something in our lives today that is so important, so cherished, so assumed in our culture? What is something that if we take it away, we won't even know what to do with ourselves? We'll be lost. How about the internet? Or cars? Or electricity? To a Jew, the law was so assumed that the law was like the internet, the electricity of our world. You'll see in a moment that other other Jews, they think Gentiles need to also follow the whole law to be saved, but here it's specifically circumcision. Why is that? What does the word, phrase, Greco-Roman mean? It refers to a period in history when everyone in the known world was influenced by Greek and Roman culture. Influenced by the government, influenced by the language. We often talk about America being a melting what? a melting pot. And there's all kinds of different people, all kinds of different cultures. They come together and we all influence one another. 
in the first century, you could call it a melting pot, but there was really only two main ingredients, Greek and Roman influence. Yes, others contributed, but they were nowhere near as influential as the Greek and the Romans. And so imagine being a Jew in the first century, and all around you, everywhere you look, you start to see the Jewish identity fading away. And one way you can see the influence of the Greeks on, in the first century on the Jewish people is by looking at the New Testament. What language is it written in? Greek. And so if you're a Jew, your nation is a theocracy, and that means the laws of God, they're not just a religious rule book. They're your national identity. And so here's the point. With the Jewish identity fading away, circumcision became the thing that distinguished them from other people and other nations. Jewish identity is fading away, but circumcision marks them out in the Greco-Roman world. It's a unique, to sign, a unique sign to everyone that they are God's people, that they are Israelites. I tried to think of a modern-day comparison to this situation. It's tough, it's theoretical, but this is what I have. Imagine if we as Americans were somehow conquered and ruled over by the Japanese, and then years later, the Russians came and they conquered the Japanese, and now we're living in a territory that we once knew as the United States, but now ruled over by the Russians. We would be in a place that's highly influenced by both Japanese and Russian culture. And the American identity would slowly fade away. Imagine living in this hypothetical world, in this Japanese-Russian America, and some patriot comes up to you and he says, I know that we are losing who we are as a people with Japanese and Roman influence everywhere, but if you will sew an American flag on your clothes, we're going to know who the real Americans are. The American flag would help us identify ourselves and mark us out in this Japanese-Russian world. Well, that's how the Jews saw circumcision. If you want to mark yourself out in the Greco-Roman world, the Greek-Roman world, you had to make sure you were circumcised. The main difference in my illustration and the situation in our text is that the American flag would have marked you out as an American, but not as God's people, unless you're a Christian nationalist. But circumcision 
to a Jew, not only marked you out as being an Israelite, circumcision also marked you out as being God's people. Circumcision was both the covenant and national identity. Jewish nationality was intertwined with soteriology. Jews, they believed that Gentiles could be saved, but they always believed that Gentiles had to become a Jew to be saved. They had to be a proselyte. So in our text, when we see men from Judea say that Gentiles must be circumcised to be saved, this is mostly about Jewish nationalism. If a Gentile wants to be saved, he has to become a Jew. That's what they're saying when they say he needs to be circumcised. Another way to put this to help understand is it would be similar to one of us going to Iraq and telling Arabs that if they want to be saved, you not only have to believe in Jesus, but you can no longer wear turbans, you have to stop listening to certain music, and you need to start fighting for capitalism. It would be saying you need to become an American on top of your faith to be saved. That's what the Jews are saying. That's what the problem here is in our text. I said there were two problems in our text that need answering. The first problem is Jewish nationalism. Do Gentiles need to become Jews to be saved? And if you look at verse 2, Paul and Barnabas' immediate reaction is no. No, they don't. And they debated with the Jews about this. But instead of simply deciding for themselves what they should have done, instead of writing it off, Paul and Barnabas decide they're going to travel to Jerusalem to discuss this issue with other church leaders. Jerusalem, the church at Jerusalem, was sort of the headquarters for the rest of the church at the time. It's where the church started. It's where many of the apostles were were in Jerusalem at that church. And so that's where Paul and Barnabas decided to go. And when they arrive in Jerusalem, verse 4 tells us that they were greeted and welcomed. The end of the text says that they told the leaders all that God had done uh, with them. What had God done with Paul and Barnabas? Surely they're telling the the leaders at the church in Jerusalem about their trips to Cyprus, about the trip to Antioch, to Iconium, to Lystra, and about how many Gentiles were coming to the faith through their journey. And as they're sitting there telling them about all these great things that God had done through them for the Gentiles... Verse 5 says that some believers who were Pharisees, they stand up and they say, pretty much, I don't even care about what you're saying with all this stuff. 
it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So we see this issue come up once again, but only adding the whole law this time. Because the law was so important, taking the law away meant that they would be lost. And if you can understand that, if you can understand that, you can understand what the major problem was in the New Testament, what the major problem is here, what the major problem is in Paul's letters, even in scholarship today. The question that everyone wrestles with is this, how does the old covenant law relate to the new covenant? Because the old covenant law was so important, what are we supposed to do with it today as Messiah people in the new covenant? There's many answers. Should we do away with the law altogether? Are we to follow what some Christians refer to as the moral portion of the law? If you ask these Jews in verse 5 the answer of the old covenant law to the new covenant, what they say would say is that Christians need to follow all of the old covenant law. Here's a question I have for all of you. Why did they think the Gentiles have to follow the law to be saved? What was the motivation? And that question, the why question, that means everything. I've answered the why question for circumcision, which is primarily about Jewish nationalism. But why the rest of the law? Why do they need to follow the rest of the law? Let's look down at verses 10 and 11. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Here's what I want us to see in reading those verses, verses 10 and 11. There is a contrast happening here indicated by the word but in verse 11. Circle that word. This contrast between verses 10 and 11, it helps us answer the why question. Why do they need to follow the law? What's the motivation for it? Notice in verse 10, Peter is speaking, and he accuses the Jews of wanting to place a yoke on the Gentiles' neck. What's a yoke? Well, it's farming equipment that would be placed on an oxen and the yoke would be placed on their neck so they could haul away heavy equipment. And the yoke here in verse 10 that Peter's referring to is the heavy burden that the Gentiles will have to carry if they follow, 
have to follow the Mosaic law. It's like a yoke. It's a, it's a burden they have to carry around with them everywhere. So Peter's saying, you want the Gentiles to carry the heavy burden of the law, but, look at the contrast, verse 11, we believe we'll be saved by grace. Grace means unmerited favor. It's undeserved. So notice the contrast again. Because Peter contrasts law and grace, law and grace is being contrasted, that means the law isn't about grace. Because grace is unmerited, undeserved favor, and because the law is not about grace, then that means law observance is about earning salvation. If grace is unmerited and not earned, and grace is not, does not uh, harmonize with the law, if it's contrasted against the law, then, then salvation through the law is not of grace. Salvation through the law is earning salvation. It's about legalism. And so that's the two problems the early church is facing in our text at the Jerusalem Council. The first problem is Jewish nationalism, and the second problem is legalism. Do Gentiles have to become Jews to be saved? Do they have to earn their salvation by following the law? That's what's going on in our text. That's what's being discussed. So verse 6 says, appropriately, the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider these matters, this matter. That's important. When the early church had a problem, a big problem, they discussed it together. And I think that's an application point that we can take away. We should think corporately, not always individually, about tough biblical issues. Throughout church history, and particularly in the early church, there was often councils that they held, much like in our text, to discover and come to answers about theological problems. In the 300s, because the Arians were teaching that Jesus isn't divine, they called what was called the Council of Nicaea. And they determined that Jesus is both divine and both human. Well, that council, the answer to that council, brought up another problem. How do these two natures, if he's both divine, he's both divine and human at the same time, how does that work together in the one person of Jesus? So they called another council, the Council of Chalcedon, and discussed that issue, and they came up with the phrase that we know today as the hypostatic union. Explanation on that another day. But even in more recent times, we see examples of the church coming together to discuss important theological issues. In 1978, 
a group of scholars and leaders, they came together to make a statement on biblical inerrancy. Just a few years ago, another group of Christians came together to discuss the issue of social justice. And they created a statement known as the Dallas Statement on Social Justice in the Gospel. So it's scriptural to come together, and we can see it throughout church history being applied, to come together to discuss tough biblical issues. Proverbs 27 teaches us, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. God didn't create us to be individuals in the woods reading our Bibles alone. I just need me and my Bible. That's a, often how we all think and how we all, some of us say and talk. He gave us other people to think through biblical issues with. I'm sure most of you here aren't going to be holding any church councils that's going to have any kind of impact on the church at large. But if there are things that you're struggling with, know that God didn't create you to deal with these problems on your own. He created you to work with others, to seek out help for others to help you think through it. It's not with just theological issues, that's with anything. Seek counsel. Don't deal with the problems on your own. Help someone think you, th- help so- uh, have someone to help you think through it. So we've seen in verses 1 to 6 that the problem being posed to the early church is the problems concerning Jewish nationalism and legalism. What decision will the council come to concerning these problems? Well, we find out that there's a lot of debate amongst them. But verse 7 tells us that eventually Peter stood up after the debate. We haven't heard from Peter in a while. If you guys remember, the last time we heard from Peter, he was fleeing Jerusalem. That was about a month ago. He was fleeing Jerusalem, and he miraculously escaped from prison, and he left. He was a marked man, so he had to get out. But here he's back in Jerusalem. And Peter, he's going to give three reasons for why the Gentiles don't have to do anything to be saved. Why they don't have to do anything else to be saved. He's going to give three reasons for it. Look at verse 7 and 8 to see what the first reason is. He says, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the hearts bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. So Peter's first reason for why the Gentiles don't need to follow the law is that they're already saved. They're already saved. Where do I see that? He first mentions they believe the gospel into verse 7. But what's important, the most important part to to see that, is the result of their belief in verse 8. Peter says God knows their hearts and bore them witness. In other words, God doesn't need some external show of circumcision. He looks at and knows what's in their heart. 
And God, Peter says, has accepted the Gentiles already. He's accepted them already. The evidence that he accepted them, that he bore them witness, is verse 8, by giving them the Holy Spirit. For Peter, reception of the Holy Spirit means God has accepted a person, and that means they're saved. End of discussion. No circumcision, no law. They're already saved. They have the Holy Spirit. Done. Listen to a couple of verses from Paul in Romans 8, verse 11. He teaches this also. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He's arguing that everyone that has the spirit indwelling them, everyone who has the spirit inside of them, Everyone will be resurrected if you have that. If you have the Spirit inside of you, you will be resurrected. A few verses later, he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For Peter and Paul, every single person who has the Holy Spirit is saved. So for Peter in our text, the argument that the Gentiles need to, after receiving the Holy Spirit, they need to get circumcised and follow the law, to him is ridiculous. Because the having the Holy Spirit means that they're already saved. Paul almost saying the exact same thing in Galatians, saying they're, they're trying to seek to be circumcised and follow the law, and he asks them the question, you guys, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So reason number one that Peter gives, the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised or follow the law to be saved because they already are saved. Let's look at reason number two, verse nine. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. What's being said here? Peter's second reason that the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised is that God is impartial. Remember earlier we said that circumcision marked Jews out from everyone else in the Greco-Roman world. And so they argued that Gentiles need to become Jews to be saved. But Peter is refuting that here he says, God made no distinction between us and them. God shows no favoritism in salvation towards a nation or towards a people. God, or Gentiles, don't need to become Jews. God accepted them as they are. Paul used this argument, the same thing against the Jews in, in Romans 2. He's speaking to the Jews. And he said, for God does not show favoritism. So Peter refutes Jewish nationalism argument by saying, God doesn't play favorites. 
Look at the third reason Peter gives for why they don't have to be circumcised and follow the law. He goes on to say, verses 10 and 11, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, but we believe we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will? Notice the phrase, putting God to the test. Why does he say that? Why does he say you're putting God to the test? This goes back to to verse 8 where God accepted the Gentiles by giving the Holy Spirit. And he's saying that if God has accepted the Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, but you're requiring them to do something else, you are testing God. We already talked about the contrast between law-keeping and grace. What he's saying is you want the Gentiles to earn the salvation by law-keeping, but God gives salvation freely. Paul in Romans 6 says, the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Eternal life is a free gift. Let me ask you something. Why are works or following the law, why is that an illegitimate path to be saved? Why can't works save us? Why can't the law save us? I want you to turn really quick to Galatians 3. I'll give you a second. I'm going to show you from Galatians first, and then we're going to come back, and I'll show it to you in our text. Galatians 3, verse 10. I'll read, and you follow along. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In verse 10, Paul is making two statements here. The first is Paul's statement that everybody, everyone who relies or tries to follow the law for salvation is cursed. They're under a curse. The second statement, which is seen by the semicolon if you have the ESV, is a quote from Moses in Deuteronomy, and it says that everyone who doesn't succeed in following the law is cursed. Let me ask you this. So one has a condition, one is certain of of being cursed. One has a condition of being cursed, one is certain that you'll be cursed. If Moses gives a condition for being cursed, and the condition is if you don't keep the law, you'll be cursed. Why does Paul conclude with such certainty that even if you try to follow the law, you're going to be cursed? Moses gave a condition. You don't do it. You don't succeed. You're going to be cursed. Paul says you will be cursed if you even try. I'll ask another way. Moses says that the only way someone will be cursed 
is that they fail to obey the law, which on the flip side means that if someone does obey the law, they won't be cursed. But Paul claims that everyone, every single person who tries to obey the law for salvation will be cursed. How can Paul say that? The quote from Moses here doesn't say that. It gives a condition. The reason why is there is an implied premise in Paul's mind. The premise is this. No one can obey the law. Human inability. Moses is right. Keep the law, you won't be cursed. But Paul knows that no one can actually do it. Obeying the law works would be a legitimate path for salvation if it could be done. But we are sinful. Notice the different vantage points. When Moses said this in Deuteronomy, he's telling the Israelites this before they're going to enter the land and attempt to obey the law. Paul has the benefit of looking back on Jewish history and seeing that they failed over and over and over again. And because he sees that they failed to obey the law, signified mainly by exile to Babylon, he concludes no one can do it, and therefore you're cursed if you even try to do it. Now go back to our text in Acts 15. You can see human inability in our text and the Jewish failure to keep the law in verse 10 in the statement that the law is a yoke that, and I quote from Peter, neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. The law is too hard. It's too burdensome. We can't do it, Peter says. In fact, the law has exposed us to be sinners, and that means our only hope, whether Jew or Gentile, is grace. Which is why he says, but we believe we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Salvation is by grace. I could spend three sermons right here. Another question real quick is, how do we receive God's grace? How do we receive God's grace? Look at the end of verse 7. The Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And the result of their belief, verse 8, God accepts them. Look at verse 9. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So we see that the acceptance with God, verse 7 and 8, the receiving the Holy Spirit, verse 8, the being renewed and cleansed, verse 9, that all comes through faith. That 
is the grace of God. Faith is the instrument to receive God's grace. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the work of Jesus Christ alone. Point two, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. I spent a lot of time in preparation trying to think of an illustration that captures all the elements we've been talking about today. This is the best I have. Imagine you're at the base of a mountain. And at the peak, someone comes and tells you there's $100 million up there waiting for you if you can go get it. If you can make it up there, the money's all yours. And so, you go to the store, you start buying all kinds of equipment, you buy strong ropes, you buy good boots, you have the best tools that you can to start climbing this mountain. But once you start off, you start to realize it doesn't matter. The mountain is so high and so steep and so difficult to climb, you can barely get higher than the base of the mountain. You know you can't do it. You know you can't climb the mountain. And what if, as you sit there in defeat, giving up on the prize money, you see a key laying in the snow? And you look over in the distance, not too far away, there's a lift that takes you from the bottom of the mountain to the very top. There's a lift there just ready to take you to the top. Easy. You walk over to the lift, you begin to investigate, and you see that in order to start the lift, you have to use the key that you just found. So you turn the lift on, you get in, and it takes you to the top where you claim your $100 million. In that illustration, I have the top of the mountain, eternal life, salvation being the $100 million. The man's attempt to climb the mountain with his own equipment and strength represents salvation by works. Using the lift to get to the very top represents God's grace. You doing nothing, just being taken there. The key to turn on the lift represents the instrument of faith to receive God's grace. Though we can, we can speak of God's grace, or faith even being of God's grace, a work of God. The Bible teaches us that there are two ways to salvation. There's a path of works, which will always fail, Trying to earn salvation by our works and our own goodness is a false path that must be repented from. But there's another path that relies solely on God's grace through faith because of the work of Jesus Christ alone. There's no middle way. There isn't some 
synergistic path where the work will rework with God's grace to be saved. When we think of the Reformation, there is what is known as the formal principle of the Reformation and the material principle. Formal has to do with design. Material has to do with which something is made. This podium's made of wood. The material principle of the Reformation, the doctrine which made the Reformation, was justification by faith alone. And it was precisely against this idea that salvation is synergistic. The reformers were against the idea that we cooperate with God to become more righteous, and that inherent righteousness that we earn becomes the basis for our salvation. They were completely against that idea. And that's precisely what the reformers were facing in the Catholic Church, particularly after the Council of Trent. In Romans, Paul gives no room for mixing works and grace together. He says in chapter 11, verse 6, If salvation is by grace, then it can no longer be by works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. It's either all of grace or it's all of works. There's no middle way. And because salvation is by grace alone, that means, as one person put it, the only thing you contributed to your salvation is your sin. That means we aren't saved by Christian nationalism. We aren't saved by works. We need to take comfort and give God the glory in knowing that every salvific benefit we have, the Holy Spirit, the desire to know Jesus, love for God, eternal life, even our faith, is all because God has decided that he is going to be gracious to us and that we don't deserve it. We were all once completely hopeless, but God intervened. He pulled us from the pit. He forgave us of our sin. He gave us the Holy Spirit. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of the work of Jesus Christ alone. If you're here or are listening in today and you still haven't believed in Jesus, I want you to know that eternal life is a free gift. It's offered to you here, right here, right now, free. If you want to be forgiven of your sins and spend an eternity with your Creator, you must repent. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And you will be forgiven because of Jesus' work in his life and in his death, on the cross, and in his resurrection. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you that we don't have to earn our salvation, that we don't have to move an inch in any direction to be saved. Jesus has done everything for us. 
and we look to him as our savior, our hero, our Lord, our master. He fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law so that we don't have to. He lived a perfect life so that we don't have to. And we pray that you would help us to know this in a deeper way this week. And we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.